Our sermon text for today is Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. Let's give our due attention and reverence to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin! For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes! And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to go cross-culture into a foreign community and to begin to live amongst a different people who do not share the values from which you come from. This does not necessarily require a passport. It could just require crossing a state line at times. But what begins to happen as you enter into this cross-cultural context is you begin to see by the way that people conduct their lives that they often have different values. Or maybe they even share the same values, but they express those values in a very different way. Perhaps you've heard of something called island time. Now, for those of us who might come from a Dutch background, that might be very painful for us to live amongst those who observe island time. 
Because that means that they are always at least 30 minutes late to every appointment that they have scheduled. Might grate against us, depending on our cultural background. But it's understood there that setting a time is relative and that they're an easygoing community that values relationships over economics and commercial transactions and operating by the rigidness, the rigidity of a clock. Or maybe if you ever travel to England, you'll understand very quickly that, quote, being British is a great value to them. And being British means adhering to some traditionalism that they can't really explain. It's just part of being a good British person. Have a stiff upper lip and build character with all this rain and clouds and lack of sunshine. It's good for you after all. You're going to be British. You go to Washington, D.C., which I had the pri not, not privilege. I had the duty to do one summer. You'll see very quickly there are their values. They value fashion if you're in the district, gym memberships, dogs rather than children, singleness, not marriage. Values are quickly discerned when you go into different cultures. Now the church is a distinct culture, or at least it ought to be. So we must ask that question, what kind of values ought we to discern when we enter into the culture of the Christian church, the faithful church, the biblical church. Indeed, as you walk into this assembly, you are crossing cultures. It might not require a passport, but nevertheless, different value system and structures exist in this place. In Matthew's Gospel here, in chapter 18, we are arriving to the fourth of five what are called discourses. Discourses are a lengthy episode of teaching from Jesus, whereas the other parts that intersperse in between the discourses, you find they're more narrative, more of Christ's works, less of His teaching. Here in chapter 18 is a discourse, a great focus on teaching, the fourth of five. And here we begin to see some of those great values that must characterize the culture of the biblical and Christian church. Three foundational values. Now, there could be others listed here, of course. This is not utterly exhaustive, but these are foundational. And so... Over these next three weeks, we're going to consider those three foundational values. Today, verses 1 through 14, we will value children and the corresponding humility that should characterize the whole church. But first, children. Next week, we will consider repentance in verses 15 through 20. And finally, as we go from 21 through 35 to close this discourse, that value of forgiveness. So today, children in humility, next week, repentance, and then forgiveness. Three great foundational values that should shape the culture of the Christian church. As we begin, let me just identify and bring out some of these themes that are occurring here. 
Notice in verse 1 of this chapter that this question of greatness, you could also use the synonym of status, begins to launch us into this uh, discourse. What has probably happened is that as the apostles are walking along, they're recognizing that Jesus just called Peter the rock. Just gave those keys of the kingdom to Peter. And then in our most recent text, Jesus sends who? Peter. To get that coin out of the fish's mouth. And then that coin is paid as a tax for whom? For Jesus and for Peter. So what's probably going on here is that the apostles are wondering and becoming worried that maybe Peter is the greatest in the kingdom and they all want to sit at Christ's right hand and at his left hand. In very similar context in the other Gospels, we see James and John and their mother coming and saying, hey, could my sons be the greatest in your kingdom? Having some arguments about this topic. Who is the greatest? They're beginning to jockey for position, to jockey for place within the cabinet of the coming presidents, you could say. This is a very common thing within societies, is it not? That as someone comes into power, as a culture is established, there will become a protected class, a privileged class. And so... It is necessary for Matthew to address this matter. Value. Status. Who is the greatest? Notice the repetition of the term children or child in verses 2 through 5. Four times in those four verses. Verse 2, he summons a child. Verse 3, become like children. Verse 4, a lowly status like this child. Verse 5, receive one such child. And then it transitions in verses 6 through 14, three times explicitly noting these little ones. Verse 6, verse 10, verse 14, these little ones. This certainly includes children, actual real life children. They're not some mere metaphor. We should also notice here too, that Christ takes two illustrations and applies them afresh to children. These are illustrations he's already used elsewhere within his ministry. Lost sheep in Matthew chapter 10 was previously applied to all of Israel. Now it's applied to the child that could stumble because of a tempter. Previously, this idea of amputation occurred in the Sermon on the Mount. It was used to address personal sin. Now it's being used differently to address the idea of someone being cut off, a person being cut off, who despises a covenant child. And so here we have these themes emerging of children, these little ones, And so let us reflect now, secondly, on the preeminence of children in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And as we begin to do this, let me just pause for a second. Because any time we begin to address covenant children, it ought to be noted 
that this can become a, a difficult thing, even a painful topic for some to consider. Miscarriage is very, very real. So is infertility. We recognize that single people here could feel excluded, even someone who is an empty nester. But these very same realities, these painful realities, were also the case in the first century. And Jesus still taught on these things, and it should be noted in our third point, we're going to recognize that this um, idea about children here, this is not here about procreation. This is about the value that our, our community here has for covenant children, and then they become a teaching lesson also for us. So this really does apply to those who do not have children, but it also does apply to real children. Okay? So, let's ask these questions. of What values should characterize Westside Reformed Church? As we begin to do this, let's just note that Jesus, I've assumed this thus far, Jesus is ministering in Capernaum. He is not amongst the Gentiles. He's in a Jewish context. In the other Gospels, we see the very same thing. Very importantly here, these children, within the context, are covenant children, not indiscriminate children amongst the world. We see that very clearly in verse 6. Little ones who believe in me. These little ones are relying on Jesus. Okay. I point these things out because the Baptist brother and sister wants to make children in this text a mere object lesson that teaches us about discipleship, but those children don't participate in discipleship. And that doesn't really make any sense. If a child is going to teach us about discipleship, that presupposes that the covenant child is a disciple. So we want to begin there today by thinking about these children and why they are preeminent in the kingdom. They're not preeminent in every way. There are the places in Scripture that tell us that childishness is not a good thing. But here, we have a five-part lesson on the preeminence of children. First part of these lessons. Verse 3. We read about the child's entrance into the kingdom. These children who enter the kingdom, these covenant children, have no concern at all with their own personal status in the kingdom. I'm not sure if you ever noticed that. You don't have kids in our church asking, hey, who's the most important person in this church? Can I be the most important person in this church? Can I have some status? Can I have some rank? They're just thrilled to be here. They're thrilled to be with you. They're thrilled to be with one another. And in this way, they show us how to enter the kingdom. They simply hear the promise, you belong, beloved. And they say, yeah, I do. Praise God for that example of what it means to enter the kingdom of Jesus. Second, verse 4. We see not just their entrance, but their preeminence and their, quote, greatness. Now, this greatness is in air quotes, of course. 
Because what exactly is their greatness? What's well, what I just mentioned earlier? That they don't think anything of themselves. They're not at all concerned about their rank or status. And that is, quote, greatness. How beloved. If Christ calls that greatness, then we must do more than just tolerate covenant children. They are to be treasured. And not only by their parents and grandparents, but by all of us. For indeed, they show us what it means to not only enter, but to be great in the kingdom of heaven. The third lesson, verse 5. We see here that Jesus tells us that these covenant children are his own representatives. They serve as his representatives. Now here, Jesus could have said, Oh, all of my apostles, those with an important office and position and calling, they're my representatives. And there could be a place to talk about office. But not here. Because right here, he tells us the one who has no office, one who has no prestige, one who has nothing at all, that one is the one through whom Jesus Christ comes to us. And this echoes something we see later in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus talks about those who have fed the hungry Christian, who have clothed the naked Christian, who have met the Christian who is imprisoned in jail and cared for them, and told them that what you did for them, you did for Christ. He comes to us through the lowly, and indeed, this means he comes to us through the covenant child. Our third lesson. Now, our fourth, verses 6 through 10. Children serve as a, you could call it a protected class. A very protected class within Christ's kingdom. Now, with this illustration of amputation here, this is a little bit confusing, but here's why things going on. We should recall what Matthew wrote earlier in chapter 5. That our personal sin we should take so seriously that we would cut off and amputate anything that would cause us to leave Jesus Christ behind. Now Christ spoke hyperbolically, of course, but that's the severity with which we should treat the idea of apostasy. Now here... He's addressing those who would cause covenant children to apostatize. And he's bringing that metaphor in here and saying that you better not despise one of these covenant children. You better not. And part of the threat here is implicit by that amputation illustration. You will be cut off but also by the implicit threat about the angels. Now, this is not some one-for-one -one guardian angel here, but saying that God has appointed His angels to serve as warrior protectors, especially for His covenant children. And those warrior protectors, they've got the ear of God the Father. 
Don't you dare despise them. Don't you dare cause them to stumble because their warrior angels has the ear of the Father in heaven and God will not let that go unpunished. Covenant children are a protected class. The final lesson. Children, verses 12 through 14, they are prized. They are prized. Again, this idea of a lost sheep is found elsewhere in this gospel and in others, but is brought to bear here to tell us about the covenant child. God prizes those children. He treasures those children. He values those children. And He will hunt them down by Christ through the Spirit to bring them back into the fold. If one is despised and lost, He will find it and bring it back. So we have a five-part lesson about the preeminence of children. Let me summarize. We've learned about their entrance. We learn about their greatness or preeminence. We've learned they serve as representatives of Christ. They are a protected class and they are prized. They are valued by God in heaven. Now before we go on to our third point, let's just linger here for a minute. Because as we linger here, we're prepared to apply this more broadly to the entire church in our next point. Well, let's ask the question, how do we view, how should we view, our covenant children in this church? I ask, do you view them as members of this church, members of the kingdom, and treat them as such, not only tolerating them, but esteeming them? That's a very different way to think about it. We can put up with them, or we can say they are an example of greatness, which changes my heart toward those covenants' children. Likewise, I would encourage us not to use the language of they are the future of the church and of the kingdom, because they are already parts of the church and of the kingdom, and they are part not only of its future, but of its present and current reality. If they were not, they could not serve for us as exemplary disciples in certain respects. This also means that when we think about the church, we should become immediately afraid of ever becoming a church that lacks covenant children. Not just because of the future, but because of what it says about the present. It would almost be like having a country club without wealthy members. What? It would be sort of like having a sports team where every person on the team lacks athletic ability. Ooh. The absence of children is more than an omen for the future, is just as much a concern for the present. After all, they're not only members and great members at that, but they represent Christ. Now again, they're not the only way that Christ is represented and mediated to us 
and our brother and sister, but they certainly do that. And so you could say that Christ is nearer to you when you hold a covenant child in your arms than when you are interacting with a Christian celebrity. You're nearer to Christ. These are a valued and protected class. At least they should be within our congregation. You might think about how ancient Roman society, when this was written, they valued Roman citizenship. We might think about how Sparta used to value the warrior. And as they valued the warrior, they would try to emulate the warrior. Our own context? Well, we value celebrity and the social media influencer. And so we begin to exalt them and try to emulate them. Everyone's going to have their talk tick or TikTok channel, whatever it's called, to be like their influencer. If we have a valued and protected class, it is the covenant child. Now, as we affirm this, I want to recognize, us to recognize that this is not the value of our surrounding society. Abortion is obviously an example here of the lack of value of children. We can also see this in the way that the birth rate has plummeted from 1800 when these things were beginning to be recorded. There's an average birth rate per woman of seven, seven children per mom for woman. Now it's down to 1.6 in the last couple of years. And researchers note this is not because of increased financial pressures, but preference for creature comforts and careers. Now, to be clear, I'm not at all criticizing anyone who has one child or two or none. Not at all. There can be good and godly reasons to not have a huge family. Okay? There are also some for whom God has not willed to grant children. And these are part of God's providence. So we do not look down on those ever. We do not, have, we do not assume they're being ungodly. Nothing like that. No. What I'm pointing out here is that in our society, children are undervalued. And that can easily creep and seep into the culture of the church. If we value them over against the culture, that means we will do a better job of bearing with their struggles and their immaturity. This is going to happen in worship. And if we're going to do a better job of bearing with them and the noise that they make, how much easier will it be if we first value them more highly? Right? If you really love someone, if you really think they're amazing and great, if you see them as, as exemplary in some ways, well, you can do a better job of putting up with their shortcomings. So let's change our hearts, not just to tolerate, but to value and to prize. And indeed, we should begin to recognize that their gentle noise, I'm not talking about the temper tantrum here, but their gentle noise is actually complementary to the preaching of the word. It's complementary to the worship of God. 
Do you think that the Jewish children were perfectly quiet all the time? No. There's a harmony that goes on with the gentle sound of children. And let's learn to treasure that. Let's learn to prize that rather than be distracted by it. And so as we think about having a future church home, we can ask certain questions. I'm not talking about a particular building here, even though we are today as in a vote. It just happens this is arriving now. But whatever building it is, we should ask the question, will it accommodate children? Will it show our value for children? Will they be nurtured within those confines? And will we do whatever is possible to exalt those great members whom God calls great? Likewise, mom and dad, this should give you encouragement in your home as you raise your covenant children. You have many mundane labors. Feeding them, chasing them when they're running away from you, changing diapers, dealing with their various aspects of lowliness and humility that can be embarrassing to you. But understand, beloved Christian parents, that, that, that you who change diapers, you are closer to the glory of Christ than one who walks in the halls of the White House. This is also encouragement to you to nurture them. The Heavenly Father values their catechesis. And so ought we. This applies to our entire congregation. We should value this. We take vows at baptism to value this as a congregation, not just for the parents. And perhaps one day, if we have Sunday school classes, people will be clamoring to teach the children. For after all, the Sunday school teacher of small children, according to this text, is more highly treasured in heaven than the greatest seminary professor. Our second point, the preeminence of children. But now, third, a kingdom of little ones. We need to go beyond the covenant child, but we must not skip over them. We've considered them now we go to see how they shape the congregation, how they shape our culture, how it applies to the adult, because it must. Because Christ is also doing that here within this text. Elsewhere in chapter 10, he's already called his disciples little ones. So that should be reverberating in our ear as we think about this little one that Christ had before them. That that is not only a covenant child, but a picture of true Christian discipleship for the adult. Now let us appreciate that important metaphor. Who ought to be welcome in this church? Who ought to enter in and be counted and numbered as one of us? Well, one who's humble. One who has no status. One who thinks nothing of him or herself. Such a one is not only welcomed, but actually great and should be heralded. Beloved, if you feel like you don't belong here, if you feel like this is not a place for you, it's actually the reverse. You most belong here. You're the highest member 
of this congregation. If your spiritual resume is empty, if you look at it and you say, I've got nothing to offer the Lord, I feel like I have nothing to offer my brothers and sisters, guess what? You are the most treasured of Christ. And you ought to be the most treasured from us. If we begin to view status in the correct way, well, then we renounce it. We recognize that our entrance is one that does not come with a spiritual resume. It does not come with all of our skills and gifts. It does not come with everything I can offer to people around me. It comes because of what Christ offers. And then what I do for my brothers and sisters, when I'm not even aware of it, I'm just trying to help out a little bit. You see, because baby gates are more appropriate to the kingdom of heaven than Lamborghinis, you who enter in as someone blue-collar, you who enter in as someone working class, you who come in not having read the biggest systematic theologies, you are more than welcome. It's a place more for you than for anyone else. Jesus Christ, you see, has never wanted to associate with the rich and with the famous, but rather with the lowly ones, tax collectors and sinners, the little ones. Because God does not need our glory. He does not need your gifts. He does not need what you could bring to Him. We love to associate with those in society who are high up because we feel like that rubs off on us a little bit. God is the opposite. The values of the world are turned upside down in the kingdom. He does not need our glory. And to highlight that, He welcomes the foolish, not the wise. The weak, not the strong. Those who are nothing rather than the th people who have everything. And so, beloved, recognize what this says about how our congregation ought to value one another. Not just the covenant child, but the one sitting beside you, the one sitting in front of you, the one sitting behind you, the one with whom you interact over a cup of coffee. May this value of the little one shape the kingdom of Jesus Christ as it is manifest here in this particular place. And so, back to the scenario I asked about at the beginning of the sermon. When you cross those cultural lines. What do we hope happens when a visitor comes to our church? What do we hope they perceive? Where do we hope they see a difference in the value system? Well, I hope they see many of the things that I've noted so far. That we treasure our covenant children. That we exalt the lowly. That we interact across socioeconomic lines. Differences in education. Differences in earthly skill. To care for those who are unlike us. And if someone walks in from the street, someone comes in who is poor, we do not neglect the widow's might because, after all, the shape and value system of the kingdom 
It has been, most importantly, shaped by our King, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. He had no form about Him, no majesty to commend Himself. He had no beauty, but was despised, rejected, a man acquainted with sorrows and with grief. Whereas foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Indeed, he was so rejected and humble and lowly, a little one in this age, that he was crucified with criminals. He came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And beloved, that is our hope today. The king who gave up everything. The king who came for the tax collector and sinner. The king who exalts the child. The king who shows himself in his work that the values of this world are turned upside down. It is in that that we hope. It is in that that we cast ourselves. And it is in our king that we begin to see how this manifestation of his kingdom ought to look. May this be a kingdom filled with little ones. Amen.